following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. We're going to read verses 25 through 32. Why don't you do something? Why don't you stand with me? I know, I know we just sat down. But let's stand and read this together. This is a prayer of the man of God. and In many ways, we want to enter into this prayer and make it our own. So if you'll notice that this prayer starts with an image of such desolation, and it ends with an image of such freedom. And as we read this together, as... as I read aloud and you read with me. We want to pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will read this word to us. That some of us who are here and feeling the desolation of this psalmist would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, receive life and strength so that we could be released and unleashed into the freedom that God has for us tonight. So let's read the word. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So, Almighty Father, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, renew us and all of creation. Lord, would you come and speak through your word? And would you take people whose souls are clinging to the dust, melting away for sorrow, people who are stuck in sadness, stuck in our disappointment, stuck in stagnant. Will you breathe into us And will you give us life according to your word? Will you strengthen us according to your word? That we could be unleashed into the freedom to run in the way of your commandments as you enlarge our hearts. Do so, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Last evening we talked about waking up to God's Word. We said that when we hear God speak in His Word, it's not information, it's 
personal address, its encounter. And the only logical response when God speaks to you is to move in response, in obedience. But but let's be honest for a second, because for a lot of people in our culture, and maybe for some of you in this room, the idea of living your life according to the word seems kind of backwards. The idea that I would take my life and everything in it and submit it to the word of God might sound oppressive, um, like suppression or repression of my desires and my urges. It sounds a little bit backwards. This criticism is put really pointedly by Christopher Hitchens in his best-selling book, God is Not Great. This is what he says. If the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian. It would be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse, because at least you can die to get out of North Korea. Given Christianity, Hitchens argues, we lose the thing that is most precious to our humanity. Freedom is... Hitchens, right. If I'm a Christian, does that mean that I miss out on the good stuff, on the fun of getting to decide what is right and what is wrong for me? Does submission to God's word fence me in, put me in a box, and somehow diminish my humanity, lower my expectations, sacrifice my freedom? I have at least one dear friend who I was texting with today that thinks so. Maybe you do too, or maybe you've struggled with these questions as well. Does living my life according to God's word make me less somehow than I could have been? This evening, I want to get at these questions by looking at Scripture's most comprehensive celebration of the word of God, Psalm 119. You might know that Psalm 119 is the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, clocks in at 176 verses. 22 sections of eight verses each, and every single, almost every single one of them talks about God's word, God's ways, God's laws, God's commands, God's statutes, God's testimonies, or God's laws. And we think of all of these things as limiting our freedom, right? And in a sense, we're right. And yet as we look at this psalm today, we find this life-giving, yet counterintuitive truth. The limitations of love are actually liberating. The limitations of love are liberating. In other words, true freedom is found not in the absence of limitations, but in embracing the right limitations, those that will unleash fullness, those that will unleash flourishing in Christ. Revival is found in embracing the limitations of of love. Because the word, the voice of God in the word, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, is what really awakens us to real life and real freedom. I want to show you this tonight in three movements, and here they are. The first movement is a cry for revival. The second is a search for design And the third is a space for freedom. So there's this cry for revival, search for design, and this space for freedom. Let's take the first point. 
Notice that the primal cry of the psalmist is for more life, not less. More vitality. He voices this desire through two really powerful images. Verse 25, he says, My soul is clinging to the dust. It's an image of a person who is lying on the ground face down, and it is as if he is one with the dust. Remember the image of of God taking the dust of the ground and breathing life into the man and the man becoming a living soul. Now this image is like he's just dust now. The breath of life is gone. And now all that he is is dust. Verse 28, we have this other image. My soul is melting away for sorrow. Have you ever felt this way? So sad that you felt like you were melting away. And he voices this emptiness. He says, I am empty. I feel almost dead. I feel like I'm melting away. Maybe all of us have times where we feel like this. And in our moments of emptiness, we long for fullness for vitality, for someone or something to come in and make us feel alive again. Let me ask you, what do you do with your emptiness, with your sadness, with those times when you feel like the breath of life is gone and you are just dust? Maybe like most people, you distract yourself from it. Feeling empty? There's an app for that. In fact, there's innumerable apps to numb the pain of emptiness that we feel. Or I once had a student who told me very honestly, he said, this was before people had phones that they used all the time. He said, you know what? Uh, My computer broke this week, and I was so lonely. (laughs) I was so lonely. He didn't say, I was bored, which is what most people would say. He said, no, I was lonely. Because underneath what most of us call boredom is really this emptiness, this sense that we are unfilled and incomplete and the breath is almost gone. Do you distract or maybe you self-destruct? Maybe you make self-destructive choices, you abuse your body, or you, maybe you, you lash out at other people because it either numbs the pain or it makes you feel temporarily more Alive, what have you done with your emptiness? It's really easy for us to disguise our emptiness. We live in an age in which all of us from an early age are taught how to do brand management. We manage our brand on Instagram and Facebook. And yet, underneath that facade of everything being okay, we feel this depth of nausea or homelessness, or loneliness. The kind that gets articulated in this psalm that the Bible gives us words for that when we feel that way. It gives us images. Last night we saw the image of Jonah curled up in the fetal position in the bottom of the boat. Now this psalm is giving us these images of a person lying face down on the ground. And maybe you're here and you're dressed really nicely. And and on the outside it looks like everything is okay. But on the inside the breath is gone. And your soul is clinging to the dust. And what are you doing to manage that? right now. Notice that this poet feels empty and he cries out for strength. He cries out for fullness. He cries out for vitality. But notice that the psalmist believes that God's promise of fullness will only be realized not in rejecting God's limits, but in embracing them. 
He seeks to be awakened by God's word. And so he freely and consistently chooses the limits of God's law. Look at verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Now, we don't normally think this way, do we? I feel so dead, so I will set your rules before me. I'm empty, so what I need is some commands. To us, that doesn't sound like fullness. That doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like repression, restriction, rules, religion. And in one sense, our instinct is right because limitations can be life-giving, but not just any limits. Limitations for the sake of limitations are a dead end. Legalism is a dead end because the life-giving limits are the ones that enable you to become who or what you were designed to be. Let me give you two examples. Think of a kite. A kite that has come loose from its string, and if you've ever flown a kite, you know this happens quite often. A a kite that has come loose from its string and now is just being tossed in the wind may have the appearance of freedom. But really, it is at the mercy of the wind. It, It has no say in which direction it's going to go. Disconnected from a flyer, it cannot fulfill its purpose. It's still a kite, but only barely, because kites are meant to be flown. They're not meant to drift in the fickle wind. But give it a restriction. Tether it to a string. And put that string in the skillful hand. And that kite will soar higher and higher than ever before. Or think of a fish. A fish washed up on the beach has some kind of freedom. It's not in a bowl. And yet, that fish has in a very fundamental way lost its freedom. But give it a restriction. Limit it to water and you set the fish free. Listen. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. The limitations that will actually unleash you into who you were meant to be. And so we need to ask, if we want to have this revival, if we say, the breath is gone and I need it back, I need the life to come back into me, I need to find this freedom again, I need to find this vitality again, we need to ask, what were we made for, that when we give ourselves to it, it will actually unleash us, it will actually set us free. Because restrictions and rules by themselves don't bring anyone to life. But when they come from the one who made you, When they come from the one who made your soul, they can unleash in you the deepest kind of life. The limitations of love are liberating. This brings us to the next movement. Design. A search for design. And fullness can only be measured in light of design. You know, the interesting thing of five of these eight verses all start with the same Hebrew word, the word derek means way or path or manner of life. And this seems to be the primary organizing theme of this section is that David here is searching for the way. Billy Joel sings, she's got a way about her. 
She's got a way about her. But the truth is that all of us have a way about us. We all have a shape to our life, a a pattern after which we live. And the psalmist is convinced that there is also a way to the world, a derrick. That the world is designed, ordered, meant to have a certain structure. And the only way that he will find fullness, vitality, the only way he'll get his breath back is if he finds the way of the designer. And so we have this wonderful progression throughout this psalm that is really a wonderful picture of what repentance looks like. First he says, God, I told you of my ways. That's confession. And then he says, God, now I've, I've confessed. I've told you what my life is all about. I've told you the way I'm living. Now make me to understand your ways. That's calibration. And then he says, now, now that I understand your ways, I see that some of the ways I've been living are false. So now I put those false ways away from me. That's concrete action. You see, where there is no concrete action, there is not repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry, but it's taking concrete action to say, I put these false ways away from me. And then he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. So it's not just defined by what I'm no longer doing, the way I'm no longer walking in, but now I have chosen this way. I'm not going to live this way. I'm going to walk this way now. It's consistent choice. And then he says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This is an increased capacity. This is the process of repentance. And it's less about beating yourself up about your sin. And that is saying no to sin and saying yes to the God who has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. This is the process of calibrating yourself to the design of the world. The psalmist is convinced that if he's going to find breath again, if he's going to find vitality again, he'll never find it by looking within himself. He can only find it in relationship to the larger whole. And so he says, God, will you help me find the way? See, when we think about freedom, so often a false picture holds us captive. Hitchens' picture of the world goes like this. There is really no intended derrick. There is no intended design. There's no way that it's meant to be, no intended shape to our humanity or our world. And so, Anyone who says, this is the way, walk in it, is going to be oppressive. He's picturing God as a tyrant, as someone whose rules are are passed down arbitrarily. That God is this power-hungry dictator who's the man bent on keeping the people down. But change the picture. Because for the psalmist, God is not a dictator. He's a designer. He's not a dictator. He's a designer. And we are his masterpieces. We are those works of arts, those poems, Ephesians 2.10, his workmanship upon which he is working. And his design is not to make us boring, but to unleash his unique masterpieces on the world so that the world could be shaped according to his design, so that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, if there really is someone who made your soul, then you can only find your purpose, your pattern, 
the way, the truth, and the life if you go to him and say, make me to understand the way of your testimonies. Let me just say, this is something that you can do tonight. I did it this morning as I sat before the Lord and I opened Psalm 119, 25 through 32, and I just walked through the verses of the psalm and I said, God, I need this today. I I came to this verse, my soul melts away for sorrow, and I said, God, these are all of the things that I'm really sad about right now. These are the things that are happening in my life and the life of people that I love that are just taking the life out of me. Will you strengthen me according to your word so that I can do what you've called me to do? And and as you do that, as you take your ways and you lay them before the Lord and you lay his ways in front of you, what happens is this wonderful process that God's spirit actually begins to breathe new life into you. That you actually are not now just wakened to the word, but wakened by the word. That breath and life is given to you. See, so many times we think God is trying to fit me into a box and make me conform, but it's the opposite. According to Romans 12, 2, we are already being conformed to the pattern of this world. There's so many things that are shaping us so that we just look a certain way and that our life is a certain way and we think a certain way. And Romans 12, 2 says, no, God's design is to break that mold and unleash you so that you are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So that you look like Jesus. Is there ever a person less boring than Jesus? And that's our destiny is to look like him. How could you think that God's design is to make you boring? To hem you in? To diminish your humanity? Jesus is the most fully alive human being there has ever been. And that's who you're being transformed to look like by his word. We go to the word. We see the mind of Christ. And as we take our ways before him and ask to understand his ways and put away false ways and commit to walk in his ways, all of a sudden, this new capacity begins to be given to us to be a little bit more like Jesus. God's laws are limitations designed to liberate our hearts to liberate our humanity, not suppress them. I like this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had an established rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that. That Jesus brings you to himself he sets your heart free so that you can run wild in whatever he's called you to do. Yes, there is a creational order that the Holy Spirit is working to bring to consummation, but the goal, according to Romans 8, is to unleash all of creation into the freedom of the children of God. Freedom is the goal. Vitality is the goal. More, not less. If you're here and you feel like your best days are behind you, your best days with God are behind you, know that no matter where you are when you came into this room, God's goal for you 
is more life, more vitality, more freedom. It's the only direction if you're going to look more like Jesus. There's more, not less. And this brings us to the final movement. Space for freedom. Get this from the last verse in the section, verse 32, which is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Another translation that NIV says, I will run in the way of your commandments for you have set my heart free. In whichever translation we use, I like them both. The emphasis here is that we give ourselves to God's commandments and our hearts get bigger. We get these larger capacities, greater freedom, wide open spaces in which to run. And I love this because it started with this heartbreaking image of a person lying on the ground in the dust. And now by the end of this section, not only is the person no longer in the dust, not only sitting, not only standing, not only walking, but running in the way of the commandments. Yesterday we saw an image of a prophet who ran away from God, and now we see an image of a psalmist running in the way of his commandments. This is a picture of freedom. But it's a different kind of freedom. It's not freedom from, it's freedom for. There are all kinds of ways that if you just live your life without limits, you will actually become less free. You'll become addicted to something. You'll become a slave of your own desires. And there are all kinds of ways that if you restrict yourself, you become more free. If you restrict yourself through healthy eating, you're released into the deeper freedom of good health. If you are restricting yourself through exercise, you're liberated into greater athletic capability. You can run faster, jump higher, play longer. If you restrict yourself through instrumental practice, you are given the freedom to play with virtuosity. The reward of discipline, which is focused limitation, is always freedom. And so too the reward for embracing God's focused limitation is liberation. Athletes talk about this. They talk about the game just coming to them. It's like a time where they hit a groove and they begin to play like from muscle memory. I remember Kobe Bryant said that when he scored 80-some points against Toronto. He said, it was like I was playing PlayStation. I was just pushing the button. It was going in every time. It's like my body took over and I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. But all of the discipline released him into a new kind of freedom. Or musicians talk about it. They get to the point where they're not playing anymore. They're just, they're not thinking anymore. They're just playing. It's like all the training, all of the discipline, all of the practice allows you to live and play on a level that you never would have been able to before. And this is the goal. The goal is not the discipline. The goal is not the practice. The goal is not the training, but the freedom that the discipline, practice, and training releases you into. See, we want life without limitations. That's our problem. We want life without limitations. But it's impossible. Because God has designed the world so that life is only unleashed as we allow the limits of love to unleash us. One of my favorite movies, and probably a lot of you have seen this movie, is a movie called Chariots of Fire. 
It tells the story of two runners who were preparing for the 1924 Olympics, and one of them is a devout Scotsman named Eric Little. Little is preparing for missionary service in China, but along the way he competes in the Olympics uh, because he's really fast. He tells me, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. But there's a problem because he doesn't race on Sunday. And the race that he's been training for and preparing for is scheduled on Sunday. And he says, I refuse to run. I have church. How many of us would do that? And the committee tries to convince him to run anyway. And he refuses. And finally, one of the Olympic members says, you know, you tried to cut him off from his greatest source of strength, and that was wrong. And he says, you know what? You run in my place on Monday. I already have a medal. You run a different race on Monday. And so it shows all the other runners are competing in the 100-meter dash on Sunday. And Eric Little is nowhere to be found. He's at church. And the passage that they're meditating on is Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. And I want to read it for you and let you just hear it. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let me show you the video of his final race from the movie. And I love watching it because as he starts running, and if you've ever been a sprinter, he has this perfect textbook form for the first part of the race. Everything is tight and compact. His knees are over his toes. His shoulders are square. But then he hits this point where at a certain point his form completely breaks down and he begins to run, in the words of another runner, like a wild animal. His head goes back. His mouth comes open. His arms go to his sides. Like this. And it's really hilarious to watch, but it's also quite beautiful because it's a picture of freedom, and I want you to see it.
think that's the kind of picture that we're meant to have in mind when we read Psalm 119, 32. I will run in the way of your commandments. The freedom, the joy, and the release, and the sense that you are on the wide open spaces of God's grace. Regardless of where you've been and what's what you've done and what's been done to you. That somehow the breath of life has been breathed into you in such a way that you are no longer on the dust. But you are up with lungs full of air running. Don't you want to run? Don't you want to run again? My prayer is that you would believe that by the power of the Spirit that that kind of vitality is possible. That's not just something that was for high school or for college students, but that that kind of vitality of feeling like your heart is alive and free and that you are on these wide open plains of God's grace with hope and possibility, and that there's always more of God to see, that's possible. Listen, I am convinced that true vitality is not the absence of limitations, but finding the right limitations, those that unleash fullness and flourishing in Christ. My marriage vows limit me to one woman, but they also set me free. My children limit me profoundly. Six and five. But my children have opened up space for me to experience grace and love and joy like I had never imagined before. God's laws limit me but their limitations lead me to life, to vitality, and to flourishing. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to oversell this. When you decide to follow Jesus, you limit your freedom. You don't just do what you want. You ask to know his ways. You choose them. You put false ways from you. You do things that are difficult and uncomfortable, and sometimes it really hurts. But along the way, as you discover this new way of living, you find that your heart is changing ever so slightly. It's getting bigger. You thought you were giving up freedom, but the truth is it was being given to you. And increasingly, you find that you are able to run where before you could only limp or walk. Here's the great hope. As you are awakened by the word, God imparts his life and strength to you, but not just that. It's not just that you fall down and he picks you back up again. You fall down and he picks you back up again, though that is true. But that as that happens, that he's actually enlarging your heart, that your capacity for God and for love is actually growing. So imagine that if you're now, your capacity to receive and give love The love of God is like a little communion cup. 
That over time, God takes that cup and he gives you a tall Starbucks-sized cup. And over time, that that tall is exchanged for a grande and then for a vente and then for whatever else is. And and, and that for the rest of eternity, this is what we're in for, that our capacity for God would begin to increase to see more and more of who he is as his love is poured into our hearts. This is what we're in for. This virtuous cycle that the more you see him, the more you love him. And then the more you love him, the more you see him. And then the more you see him, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you see him. And your heart is getting bigger, getting more capacity to love and be loved. This is fullness. This is freedom. Now, as we've been saying, it works the way too, as you turn away from hearing the word, as you tune your heart to itself, your heart shrinks. That happens too. I really believe this, that spiritual sensitivity dulls and deadens, so that not only do you not feel the freedom to run, you have trouble walking, you have trouble moving, you get stuck, and then it's back in the dust again, and you stay where you are because you shut yourself off from the breath that would give you life. It comes through the word. And left to ourselves, we would have no hope. We would say, my soul clings to the dust, and we'd have no choice but to stay there, to lie on the ground as if we were dead. The good news is that God is committed to speaking life into dead things. That God is committed to speaking life into dead things. The psalmist prays that God would give him life from his word. Life always comes from the word. Hundreds of years after the psalm was written, John the Apostle wrote this about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, And Christ will shine on you. May it be that tonight you hear those words, not from me, but from God, speaking out by the power of his Holy Spirit. That if you are in the dust, you would hear the voice of the Spirit of God speaking, moving to you and saying, Arise, O sleeper, arise from the dead. And let Christ shine on you. He's shining, he's shining. His light is your life. This is life, to receive the word, Jesus Christ, breathed out by the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ is our source of strength, of revival, of life, so that we can run. I'm almost done. I'll just close with this this part from C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian. I don't know if you've read the book. Um, but in the book, it follows these children who find their way into this magical land of Narnia, and there they meet this, this lion, Aslan, um, who's a figure of Christ. And when Lucy gets in the second time, more than anything, she just wants to see Aslan. And she waits throughout the whole story to see him, and she doesn't see him, and she doesn't see him, and it comes to this climactic scene where she finally sees Aslan, 
the desire of her heart. And this is what it says. And then, O oh joy, for he was there. The huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew, she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is the wonder of following Jesus Christ. He keeps getting bigger. He keeps getting bigger and better and more beautiful. And that's how you know you're growing up, spiritually speaking. If Jesus keeps getting bigger to you, I tell students all the time, I say, you know what? The faith of junior high is not sufficient for high school. There are complications and problems that you will encounter when you get to high school, and the faith you had in junior high will not be enough. Jesus must get bigger. And and then when you go to college, the faith you had in high school is not sufficient for the challenges of college. There are new challenges and new temptations and new situations that you will find yourself in, and if you just cling to the faith you had in high school, it will not be enough for the challenges of college, but Jesus is big enough for that too. And you must find that he gets bigger. And then when you graduate college and you get into the real world, the boredom and the mundaneness of going to a nine-to-five job or wanting to find a job or not being able to find a job and feeling like you're going day after day after day, the, the faith of college may not be enough for the next stage of life. And then when you get married or you, you want to get married, you get your heart broken and you feel the tension and the struggle of having children and comparing yourself to every other parent that there is. And as you go through every stage of life, the the faith of the previous stage is not sufficient for that next stage. And so Jesus must continue to get bigger. That's how you know you're getting older spiritually. Because you find that no matter how much the the challenges rise, no matter how much the doubts escalate, no matter how much there is now that there was not before, that Jesus is still bigger than that. He's bigger and better and more beautiful and whatever you're facing, whatever depth you feel you have fallen to, he is deeper. He is stronger and he is better than you could possibly imagine. You have seen maybe 2% of everything that he is and all that he has for you. And would it be that the Holy Spirit would breathe into you tonight to give you hope? Hope that is grounded not on wishful thinking, but that is grounded on the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead would secure your hope 
that dead things can live again. That tomorrow can be better than today. And that the best is yet to come because there will always be more of God to see. Would it be today that God would take you from the dust and set you back on your feet and you would begin to walk and walk and then you would begin to run and that you would know that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Will you bow and pray with me? God, my heart breaks tonight for I know the pain of some of the people in the room. And I can imagine the pain of other people in the room. And I can imagine the hopelessness. And I can imagine the quiet despair that gnaws at the soul. <sighs> the emptiness that hides behind our social media brands. The loneliness that haunts us even in moments when we're surrounded by people. The feelings of inadequacy as a husband or wife, as a parent, as a son or daughter, as, as a person of value and worth in this world. Lord, you know where we are. You know that many of us feel like we're in the dust or that we are melting away. And our only hope is not in, in words spoken by a man or words written on a page, but living words breathed out by your Holy Spirit to our hearts that will actually give us strength, pick us up out of the dust, and set us on our feet to run again. Do so tonight, Lord. For those of us who have lost all expectation of more, who have contented ourselves with a low level of vitality, awaken our hearts to dream again of the bigness of God and the bigness of Jesus. Open our eyes so that we could see that He is bigger and better than we have imagined. We think we've seen it all. We think we figured it out. And so, God, will you surprise us again? Awaken our hearts again, God. Awaken us, awaken us, awaken us, Lord. Give hope to the hopeless. Give strength to the weary. And as we embrace the limitations of your law, May it unleash in us a life and a love that is contagious, that is free. May we enter into the freedom and the fullness and the hope that you have secured for us through your life and death and resurrection. 
And so we look to you tonight. We offer ourselves to you. Move in our lives and in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.